Matthew chapter 1. Through December, we're going to uh, take a break from the Sermon on the Mount. Having concluded the Beatitudes, we'll return, Deo Volente, to the Sermon on the Mount uh, in January. Uh, but we'll be looking at some themes in the next few weeks as they lead up to, uh, to Christmas. Today, uh, we'll be looking at Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, hear the word of the Lord. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, Son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the amazing birth of the Lord Jesus Christ and the events that surround, precede that birth, even the prophecies uh, going back hundreds and hundreds of years that we read in the Old Testament. Father, we pray now as we study this passage of your word that you would inform our minds with your truth and that you would stir our hearts with worship and adoration of you, our true and living Savior God. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. The next few weeks will be in a sermon series leading up to Christmas that I'm calling The Cast of Christmas. This sermon series is inspired by the town of St. Albans, West Virginia. I suppose that needs some explanation. Well, about this time of year, we start hearing of the difficulties that towns find themselves in over the whole matter of nativity displays. And they really are caught uh, between a rock and a hard place. On the one hand, the nativity display out on uh, public property could bring on the possibility of a difficult and expensive lawsuit. On the other hand, to remove the nativity display would in, in, uh, invoke the, the ire of the majority of the public who would like to see such a display be put there or to remain there. So what's a town to do? 
Well, St. Albans, West Virginia, solved this difficulty by coming up with a rather ingenious, if not dismaying, compromise. As you pass the, uh, the town park, you see a structure there that looks somewhat like a barn. Uh, and you think, oh, a nativity display. As you get closer, you'll notice that there is a star. There are a couple of sheep. There's a camel. There's, well, that's it. While these animals are there, uh, as you get closer, you would be mistaken for thinking you might find Joseph, you might find Mary, you might find even the baby Jesus, but no, they're missing. In fact, a spokesman for the uh, St. Albans City Park said, you could call it a manger. We call it a place for animals. It looks like two things coming up on the sides with a roof-like structure, and what it looks like depends on your imagination. We've never had a baby Jesus or Mary or Joseph or wise men. Unfortunately, this Jesusless nativity scene is symbolic of many people's Christmas. It has some of the trappings, but it lacks the substance. Some of the right appearance, but it misses the main thing. And so what's missing in the St. Albans barn, we're going to fill in in our studies over the next few weeks as we look at the people who really were there and certainly in any nativity scene really ought to be there, the cast of Christmas. Today we're going to be looking particularly at Joseph. Uh, Joseph is somewhat overlooked as you think about Christmas uh, and even in the hymns, even in our own hymn book and the songs, there are some that that point to Joseph, that reflect on his experience, but by far the uh, majority of the, of the focus is on Mary and, and rightly then on, of course, Jesus himself. And we'll look at Jesus in time, but today we want to look at Joseph. And, of course, looking at all of these, we, we look at Jesus because you can't avoid looking at Jesus even as you look at Joseph or Mary or the wise men. And so today we want to look at Joseph. Joseph, while somewhat overshadowed, actually is the focus here in uh, Matthew's account of the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. Joseph, of course, was not the biological father of Jesus, but in fact he did play a significant role, as we see, in that he was the one who uh, passed on to Jesus the royal lineage of the house of David. Uh, he was a descendant of King David. And it was through Joseph's taking Jesus as his own son that prophecies were fulfilled, that the line of David would continue forever and that he would not fail to have a descendant to sit on the throne over and rule over Israel. Now, we may be more familiar with the appearance of the angel to Mary. as We read about it in Luke, and Lord willing, we'll look at that uh, account in the weeks to come. But an angel also came to Joseph, though in a dream, and announced the birth of this son and, and what Joseph was to think about it and what Joseph was to do about it. And so as we look at this passage, you want to look at it in terms of five stages through which uh, Joseph passed as he encounters these things and deals with these things. Well, first of all, it starts 
with his betrothal. Now, Matthew introduces this in verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. In other words, this is, this is how it happened. This is how it came about. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, for Joseph to be betrothed to Mary, and we don't know Mary's age, uh, although it was not uncommon for young Jewish girls to be betrothed at the age of 12 or 12 and a half, uh, quite young. Uh, what we do know is something of the custom that surrounded these betrothals. They were quite different from what we would consider as an engagement. Uh, when a man asks a woman to marry him and she agrees, uh, they are engaged. They are preparing for the wedding. They are preparing for their marriage. And they are, uh, to some degree, committed to each other by virtue of their agreement to get married. Now, in Jesus' day, with Joseph and Mary, the betrothal was something more structured and, in fact, much more binding. Uh, upon their betrothal, they could be described as married. In fact, it refers here to uh, Mary uh, as his betrothed, and, in fact, it refers to his having to divorce her uh, which would have to take place. Uh, now, normally when a betrothal occurred, they did not come together right away. In fact, uh, usually the bride remained in her father's house for the next year. And at the conclusion of that year, uh, the bride then came to her husband's house. Great celebration took place. And that's when we might think of as the wedding taking place, but they were in fact already betrothed, they were committed to each other, and the only way that this betrothal or engagement, if we want to put it in our modern terms, could be broken was, as our text indicates, through a formal a judicial action, through a, through a divorce. Now, during that time, they did not live together, they did not have any kind of intimate relationship with each other. Uh, nevertheless, a formal procedure had to be followed in order to end the betrothal. And any violation of that betrothed condition was considered to be adultery. And the laws pertaining to adultery in the Old Testament would, would take effect. And so we read here that uh, Joseph was betrothed to, to Mary... And before they came together, in other words, during that year period before she had formally become his uh, bride living with him, they'd taken up a common residence together, she is found to be with child. Now, Matthew adds from the Holy Spirit, because he knows that, you and I know that, but at the time it happened, Joseph did not know that. And so that leads up to the second stage of his dilemma. He suddenly finds himself in a rather difficult and heartrending position. What was it he think? His betrothed, well, is showing. What's he to do? Well, he had to make a choice. He had to do one, basically, one of three things, one of which was simply to go ahead with the marriage. However... 
he knew what he would be facing with that, and he knew what Mary would be facing with that, the social stigma, uh, the disapprobation of those who knew him, uh, those who knew her, those who knew the situation, something that uh, they would be living with for a very long time. We also read here that uh, Joseph was a just man and unwilling to put her to shame. His other option would, of course, be to accuse Mary, to bring basically charges against her before the powers that be and uh, have a trial for her. This would make a public spectacle of her. This would be a great embarrassment to her. Um, We read that Joseph was unwilling to do that. It says that he was a just man. He was a righteous man, in other words. And he was unwilling to put her to shame did not want to embarrass her, make a public spectacle of her. The uh, third option that he had was, in fact, what he resolved to do. He resolved to divorce her quietly. And so that was his decision, the third stage. He arrived at a decision. We don't know how long he thought about this, prayed about this, agonized over this, what to do, but we read then his decision was to divorce her quietly. Now, According to the Old Testament law, he could have brought charges, could have been a trial, and in fact, she could have been stoned as an adulterer. He didn't do that. What he did was follow the procedure in Matthew, or rather Deuteronomy, chapter 24, verses 1 and following, that allow for the husband in in such a case to write out a certificate of divorce, to have it signed by two or three witnesses, and the deed was done. It's quieter and yet, nevertheless, effective. And so that is what he chose to do, to divorce her, to protect her in a way that was relatively quiet. Now, Alexander White, a Scottish Presbyterian minister of the 1800s, early 1900s, uh, has a book of various character studies uh, in the scriptures. In fact, they're in our library. And uh, he has some on Mary and Joseph. And White was known for being somewhat dramatic, someone, some, some might even say melodramatic, and uh, you might agree as you read his description of Joseph in these circumstances. This is, what he, this is what Alexander White wrote. His heart was broken with his terrible trial, but there was only one course left open to him. Conclude the marriage he could not, but neither could he consent to make Mary a public example And there was only left to him the sad step of revoking the contract and putting her away privately. Joseph's heart must have been torn in two, for Mary had been the woman of all women to him. She had been in his eyes the lily among thorns, and now to have to treat her like a poisonous weed, the thought drove him mad." Well, I don't think Joseph showed any signs of madness, but no doubt we read over this without perhaps considering the emotional turmoil and agony that Joseph endured when he found out that his betrothed was with child. Well, at this point, then, he receives forth his instructions as the Lord comes to him, verse 20, as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. 
She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, as Joseph had reached this decision, had been pondering these things, comes to this conclusion, the Lord comes to him in a dream and gives him instructions as to what he is to think and how he is to proceed. In the first place, says to him, do not fear, reminding him, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. Why the fear? Well, again, it might go back to uh, the prospect of, well, what people would think. People talking. We're all governed to some degree, probably more than we know, by the opinions of others. I'm reading a book right now by Ed Welch called When People Are Big and God is Small. Because when people are big, we're governed by them. We're governed by what they think less than we are the opinion of God when he shrinks in proportion to our exaggerated and inflated fear of the opinions of others. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife. Perhaps it was fear of wagging tongues, whisper, whispers, the glances, the talk that he knew would be going on. But at any rate, he says, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. Why not? For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Uh, or as the Lord, the angel said to, uh, to Mary, uh, about Mary, the uh, power of God would overshadow her. Uh, the action of God bringing about this mysterious and miraculous virgin birth, a virgin conception, that which is conceived in her is from God himself, from the Holy Spirit. He also tells Joseph, uh, and this is, of course, well in advance of the days of uh, sonograms being able to see the baby in the womb, increasingly now in uh, three dimensions, uh, where a very sophisticated image of the unborn child can be seen in the womb. Uh, Joseph actually knew well before the baby came that this was going to be a little boy. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. One wonders if Joseph was tempted to uh, spill the beans to his family, or as some of you have done, to remain secret about what you know about your child until the event. Joseph knew, uh, and you shall call his name Jesus, given the name Jesus, <clears throat> which was not an unusual or uncommon name in that day. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. Now, the name Jesus uh, actually, Jesus in Greek uh, is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew name Joshua, as we'd say it in English, Joshua, uh, which means he saves, or the Lord is Savior, the Lord is salvation, something to that effect. Now, again, Jesus was not an uncommon name. Uh, however, the fullness of the meaning of that name bore upon this child uh, in a way that it did no other. Because not only would his name mean he saves, but his life would be the carrying out of that work of bringing about the salvation of the Lord. For he will save his people, which of course we know uh, from the whole of the scriptures, those who would trust in him were his people. Uh, Jesus said in John 10, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. He will save his people 
from their sins. Now, this is the instruction that is given to him. And Matthew comments then in verse 22 uh, that all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Matthew enjoys taking Old Testament prophecies and showing their fulfillment in Jesus because Matthew was writing primarily for a Jewish audience. He was writing for people who truly would feel the weight of the prophecies and were familiar with the prophecies in the Old Testament. And he's saying to them, here is what was prophesied and here is how it is fulfilled in Jesus' life. And here he quotes from Isaiah 7, the passage we read earlier, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Now this was a sign given to King Ahaz as a result of his unbelief as a result of his looking for uh, military and political alliances in the face of Syria and Ephraim, the northern kingdom of Israel, Ephraim allied against him. And the Lord says, ask for a sign. He said, no, I'm not going to ask for a sign. I won't put God to the test. False piety. That was an expression of his unbelief. And so Isaiah says, the Lord will give you a sign. And you may know, if you study that text or read much about it, that the word that Isaiah uses was not the technical Hebrew term for a virgin. It was the term for a young woman or a maiden. However, the implication of that term was, in fact, virginity. And the Septuagint, which is an old Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, in fact, translated well before the time of Christ, uses the same term Matthew does here, as he quotes from it, parthenos, the Greek term for virgin. And it was clear that those translators of the Old Testament, when they translated it into Greek, understood the term to mean a virgin, a woman who had known no man. And so when Matthew quotes it here, that is precisely the term that he uses coming out of that Greek translation. And as Matthew wrote in Greek, that's the term that appears here. But the significance, of course, is in the miracle, but also in the name. They shall call his name Emmanuel. And Matthew translates that, which means God with us. What does that mean, God with us? Well, the the point was God with us to save us, God with us to be our deliverer. Remember King Ahaz uh, is is afraid of the, the, the... Syria and Ephraim coalition against him. Well, the name Emmanuel means God is with us. You don't look to human means. You don't look to Egypt or other nations around you. You look to God because he is with us. He's the one who will save. He is the one who will deliver. And so while Jesus never actually was known by the name Emmanuel as a personal name, as 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 a name that people would call him, nevertheless, he bore the name, the title, but in a measure beyond anything uh, Ahaz could have comprehended because here was God with us, not merely in his power to deliver, not merely in his power to protect, but God incarnate, God with us in the flesh, God having the second person of the Trinity, having descended from the glories of heaven, the worship of the angels, the majesty of, of the presence of God 
to be born in a manger, to live in a sinful and fallen creation, to live among a wicked and unbelieving people, and eventually to go to the cross to die for his people, for his sheep, for all who would ever repent of their sins and put their trust in him alone as their Savior. So the name Emmanuel, God with us, takes on a dimension that uh, was fulfilled at at no time in the, the Old Testament to that degree, to that depth, to that amazing and miraculous way. God with us. That's why Jesus was not only the son of David, he was the son of God. He was God incarnate, God in the flesh. Well, then last we come to the obedience that Joseph showed. Verse 24, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, he kept her, they followed through, but he knew her not. There were no relationship, there's no relationship there in an intimate sense until, so much for the perpetual virginity of Mary, undone with one little word, until, For Joseph, it may have been a long until, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus, Savior, he saves. Well, what St. Albans left out of its display, whatever you want to call it, and unfortunately was missing from so many people's Christmas is present here. Uh, in this passage was present there in that first and the real nativity scene where the Lord Jesus was born and uh, was there in the manger. Well, as we look at this passage, we don't know a whole lot about Joseph. And really after this, except for the next uh, the chapter 2, uh, Joseph really fades from the scene. It's, it's interesting to, to speculate what might have happened to him. Presumably at some point he died. Uh, Later on, uh, we don't read anything of his presence uh, in the life and ministry of Jesus. Mary was there, his brothers were there, but there's no mention of Joseph. But we do know two things about him, two things that, at least as far as the character of a man goes, probably is all we need to know. We know he was a just man. That is, he was a righteous man, an upright man, a man of integrity, a man who would do the right thing. And we know that he was a compassionate man, because here this woman, as far as he knew, had wronged him grievously, and yet he was not vindictive. It was not his purpose to embarrass her, to put her to shame, to make a public spectacle of her, but simply to end this as quietly and privately as he could. So we know about Joseph. He was a just man, and he was a righteous man. We also learn a great deal about his son, In this passage, we learn it from his name, Jesus. He saves, the Lord saves, because you see at uh, at Christmas, God gave to us, to rebellious, law-breaking sinners, his only son, the greatest gift, uh, his son, a Savior. God has given to us, son of David, son of God, Savior. Dear friends, whatever we know or don't know about Joseph, you dare not celebrate Christmas without the child, the Christ of Christmas. Let's pray.
Lord God, we thank you for Joseph. We thank you that of all of the men who ever lived, it was Joseph that you chose to be the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, not in a biological sense, but to pass on to him his lineage, adopting Jesus, bringing him to his home, giving him his name, and passing on through Joseph, that title, Son of David. But Father, we thank you for Joseph's faith, for his obedience to you. We thank you even more than that, Lord, for the son that you gave to that family, for our Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray that we would never remove him, ignore him at Christmas, but worship, praise, celebrate the birth, the miraculous birth of our Savior. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.